0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your regular host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm excited to have with me Brian K of ABA Publishing. He is going to be conducting an interview today uh, for this episode. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. So, I was excited, and I've told our listeners about this partnership that we're doing with ABA Publishing. Right. Uh, And some people may think, oh, ABA Journal, ABA Publishing, what's the difference? Can you talk just a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what ABA Publishing does?
1: I'd be happy to. ABA Publishing is the ABA's dedicated central publisher, and we publish... A variety of books and periodicals, practical books for practical lawyers. They treat substantive law, but they also treat larger issues in the law, which is enormously important since the rule of law helps to drive democracy. I have been privileged to work with the ABA for 17 years, and my role is as director of editorial and licensing.
0: So, today, your guest is Darren Heitner, uh, author of How to Play the Game. What were some of the fun elements about the book that you talked with him about?
1: Well, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, Sports law is much more complex than I thought, and um, the changes in sports law that are going on right now are remarkable the issues with the NCAA and student athletes, the rise of fantasy leagues and the legal issues around those. In addition, there are intellectual property issues. For instance, the use of athletes' images in video games and also the copyright on tattoos.
0: Wow, that sounds fascinating. We now cut to your interview with Darren Heitner, author of How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know.
1: Thank you for joining us for the Modern Law Library podcast. With us today is Darren Heitner, author of How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know, Second Edition. Darren is a top-rated attorney and a leading expert in all aspects of sports law. He founded his own law firm, Heitner Legal, PLLC, after rising to partner at another firm by the age of 27. Darren has also served as an adjunct professor of sports agency management, a course he created at Indiana University in Bloomington. Darren is the co-founder of Collegiate Sports Advisors and the creator and editor-in-chief for the Sports Agent blog, which has been publishing since 2005. Recently, Darren created his own web-based sports business publication called The Sports Biz, focusing on the intersection between sports and money. Darren, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today about your book, How to Play the Game.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Darren, aside from Jerry Maguire, what inspired you to go into sports law?
2: To be quite honest, Jerry Maguire didn't serve as an inspiration for me. I think most people who watch that movie are probably intrigued by the profession of representing professional athletes, but if you actually look closely throughout the movie— There are a lot of very trying times for Tom Cruise, who plays the part of Jerry Maguire. And he loses everything, only to have a very small business at the end. Um, I was very interested, that said, to be a sports agent. And in fact, back in 2005, the same year that I created what you mentioned, the Sports Agent Blog, I had an internship in Atlanta, Georgia, where I interned at a company that at the time was called career sports entertainment. And today is referred to as CSC. And that was really the start of what led me to want to become an agent. At the very beginning, first day, I was dealing with clients from baseball players, golfers, coaches in the NBA, broadcasters, and helping them navigate their area, understand, the positives and negatives in any decision-making process that they were going through. In fact, one of the very first things that I was involved in was helping coach Nate McMillan at the time decide the posit- through the positives and negatives at various NBA teams, which would be the best destination for him. I really enjoyed the experience altogether. And when I went back to the university of Florida where I was enrolled for my undergraduate studies, it was my junior year, I was a political science major, and I basically said to myself, what can I do to get a, a, f- a step ahead? How can I start to learn more about the sports agent industry? And how can I put myself in a position to try to become a part of that industry upon graduation? And that's really why I started the Sports Agent Blog back in 2005. I wanted to get into sports law because I had a pension for negotiating. I was a high school uh, debate team member, uh, going from competing at the local level to the national level and having quite a bit of success. And I wanted to marry that with the world of sport. Uh, I've, I've played a lot of different sports throughout my life, like many who want to get into the sport, into the sports industry. You know, I, I love the idea of being able to practice in an area that I was watching, that I was participating in, etc., So marrying negotiation to sport was really the goal. And at first I thought it was becoming a sports agent. And I did that for a few years before pivoting uh, to really focusing on a legal practice that was dedicated primarily to to sports-related activity.
1: Darren, that's a a great lead-in to my next question, which is, what advice would you give to students who want to become sports lawyers? And then the following question— what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in opening your own law firm?
2: Well, the first question I get often, if not every day from students around the country, whether they be in high school, whether they be working on their undergraduate degree or even in law school. And oftentimes even practitioners in law will ask, how do I become a sports lawyer? Um, And, you know, starting with the high school, undergrad, and maybe even the law school students. I tell them, one, you know, I often am asked, should I go to a particular law school or do I even need to go to law school? To become an agent, not necessarily. About half of the registered agents throughout various sports leagues are lawyers. The others have no traditional legal practice or experience. Um, You know, with regard to those who are lawyers, Many of them didn't go to law schools that have dedicated sports law programs. There are some schools that have really developed, especially in the past five to ten years, sports law curriculum. And those include schools like Tulane, Arizona State, and Marquette, and more recently, University of Miami. But I often tell people, think about what your priorities are. Don't necessarily go to a school because they're marketing a sports law program. Sports law is really a combination, first and foremost, of various types of practices of law that are, in a way, applied to the sports context. That said, there are areas of sports law that are very unique. For instance, my law firm practices a lot within the confines of the players' associations. And those players' associations, when there's an agent versus agent dispute or an agent versus player dispute, those disputes are within the confines of those players' associations' regulations, which oftentimes require uh, arbitration and grievances, as opposed to traditional civil lawsuits in front of a judge and in front of a jury. And the case law even is very different. The precedent is set by what has been decided by arbitrators in the past. So those who want to become sports lawyers and practice in that particular area should probably – try to start learning about what that precedent is within the various uh, professional sports unions. But after that, I would say, if you want to become a good sports lawyer, obviously you have to have connections to sport. You have to have connections to either athletes, agents, financial managers, CPAs that have connections in the space. But more than anything, become an expert in a particular area. For me, it was intellectual property. For others, it could be criminal law. It could be family law. It could be contracts, etc. So I oftentimes tell students that want to become a sports lawyer, become an expert in something other than sports law, and then try to create connections in the world of sport to show your expertise and start to build a practice that way.
1: What were some of the greatest challenges that you faced?
2: Well, I think the biggest challenge that I've faced throughout my professional life, and I probably still face it time to time currently is my age. And I think you even pointed that out in the intro. As we talk right now, I'm 33 years old. I'll, t- I'll turn 34 in February of 2019. So I'm still relatively young in the legal world. And I'm oftentimes, whether it be negotiating a complex transaction or litigating uh, a particular dispute, the opposition is often or the representative of the opposition is oftentimes older than me if not much older than me so i think definitely opening up my own practice in june 2014 when i was 29 years old it was a challenge to uh convince persuade people that they should put their trust in me Uh, despite the fact that i already had some very strong experience in the world of sport and entertainment Uh, If given the choice, if all things considered, if if billing rates are similar, et cetera, why would somebody want to choose a 29-year-old as opposed to a 49-year-old? And so that's absolutely been a challenge throughout. But fortunately, I I don't know of a single instance where I've lost an opportunity because of my age. I always try to basically reframe it and, and indicate, look, you're going to have somebody who's very experienced, who may not cost as much as a big law firm especially a lawyer that's out in L.A. or New York. I'm based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And you're going to get somebody who is absolutely driven, driven for results, driven for success, and a good communicator. So
1: to answer your question succinctly, I think the
2: biggest challenge has Mm -hmm. been age.
1: Darren, you also spoke about your gift for negotiation. And in your book, you share a very insightful section on the art of negotiating a contract. In your view and based on your experience, what are the different approaches to contracts and the key elements to negotiating the best deal?
2: Well, I think one area that I've benefited from in the realm of negotiation is that my law firm and I do quite a bit of litigating. And a lot of the litigation that we do is based on contract, uh, whether it be breach of contract or some sort of unjust enrichment or promissory estoppel claim. And so I always take an eye in negotiating and drafting contracts To the what-ifs the clients are always saying, you know, we're this is my buddy This is someone I've known for a decade. I can't ever envision anything blowing up But the bottom line is that's how every relationship begins And so at least from from a drafting and negotiating standpoint, I'm always looking at every contract with an eye at What if this blows up and how can my client be put in the best situation possible? but Being a litigator and being a negotiator also requires me to sort of turn on and turn off a switch on different occasions. When I'm litigating, obviously, I'm going to be much more adversarial, whereas when I'm negotiating a contract, oftentimes, you at least want to begin the communications being very cooperative as opposed to competitive. And I go through that in the book. Those are the two main overarching styles of negotiation cooperation and being a competitor. And as I said, at least in the infancy, you want to be as cooperative as possible. You want to talk to the other side, have an appreciation, not only of their positions and their interests, but do research on who they are, what deals they have crafted and negotiated in the past, what types of personalities they're known to have. And then oftentimes I like making process comments, not even necessarily focusing directly or only on the specific terms of a negotiation but discuss why it is that they're asking for certain items concessions are always very important i just had this conversation with a client the other day where we're talking where we're looking at what our end goal is and what we're willing to concede but you don't want to provide those concessions right off the bat and the name of the game is leverage And that's why you hold those concessions back. You want to show the other side that you have what it takes to get the deal done and that you have something that they want. Obviously, they know that they have things that you want as well. That's where those concessions can become very important. And you don't want to turn them into giveaways. So that's just a little bit of... uh, you know, a crash course on negotiation, which obviously the book goes into much greater detail.
1: Speaking of adversarial, the book has a really thoughtful and extensive chapter concerning the ongoing struggle between the NCAA and the rights of college athletes. Based on what you're experiencing and what you're seeing, do you see or predict any changes to the boundaries around amateur status, employment, and compensation? And what do you think about the monetization of player likenesses?
2: I do envision a change in in the future. I don't know if it's the near future or if it's five years down the line or 10 years down the line. But we've seen a gradual change over time. And very recently, in fact, we saw in New York uh, a a jury deciding that three individuals connected to college sports were guilty uh, in a case that involved two individuals who had worked at adidas in the marketing department and one individual who was considered a quote unquote runner he was an individual who worked on behalf of a sports agency trying to get amateur players or so they're called to sign with the agency ultimately and what was discovered in this litigation was that there are a variety of payments going on under the table whether or not there are laws to prevent that, whether or not there are NCAA bylaws that seek to preclude it, people are paying athletes and coaches in order to either sign with a particular sports marketing company or sports apparel and shoe company or a sports agency. And I think that at some point in time, The NCAA now is going to be required to use a lot of that information to penalize various schools. And we're not talking about Division II, Division III schools. We're talking about top-line institutions like Louisville, like Kansas, like Miami that have been caught up in this mess. And so I think where push may come to shove on this matter is if the NCAA penalizes these schools, Do they not all group together and determine that we don't need the NCAA anymore? What is it that the NCAA is really providing us? Can we actually create the competitions, receive the revenues through the major conferences that have been created? And that may be where there is initially some real change in this space. Additionally, there is litigation ongoing as to whether or not there can be constraints on college athletes to prevent them from really exploiting their commercial opportunities. Uh, And we may see more developments in that space concurrently. So I think the writing is on the wall. Athletes will continue to be provided more benefits legally beyond the cost of attendance, in my
1: opinion. Darren, speaking of change, for this edition of the book, you've added a new and timely section on eSports, and you discuss a number of fascinating issues surrounding video gaming, from permission to use an athlete's likeness to whether gamers should be considered athletes themselves. What do you see as some of the key legal issues going forward?
2: Well, what we see with eSports is a rapidly growing industry. Um, You know, you look at it year to year and the projections are booming uh, from a few hundred million dollar valuation in the industry to one billion dollars to beyond. In fact, Forbes just came out with its first piece uh, on the valuation of the top esports teams in the world. And I believe the top 12 esports teams combined had a valuation of roughly one point seven billion dollars. So, you have a lot of investment that's also coming into the space. I think that there will be probably a lot of work to be done based on the fact that in its infancy, the esports industry was, in many respects, handling transactions either on a handshake basis or with very weak contracts. And as the individual players and the teams grow in prominence, I think there will probably be some contractual issues in the space leading to an opportunity for lawyers to be involved, especially ones that have an appreciation uh, for the nuances in professional video game operations. There's definitely opportunities for lawyers who are interested in in being a part of the deal flow with a vast, amount of resources being invested by venture capitalists and otherwise in various teams and in crafting the various transactional related documents for sure. Uh, additionally, I think in intellectual property, I mean, who owns what uh, and and what can be exploited for commercial gain? It's a really, really interesting uh, area. I guess that's, for all intents and purposes, considered a sport, despite the fact that you know, there's really no athleticism other than using your fingers on a joystick or on a controller.
1: It is interesting. And speaking of who owns what, you have a really interesting and fun segment in this new edition, where you mention Colin Kaepernick. And you don't mention him in reference to the lawsuit that he has against the NFL, but in reference to his tattoos. And you raise the really good issue and question of, Who owns those tattoos? Is it the recipient? Is it the tattoo artist? And you yourself have been involved in a case and litigation surrounding this. Can you uh, provide some more comments? That's correct.
2: And with regard to Colin Kaepernick and his collusion lawsuit against the NFL, perhaps that's something that we touch upon in a future third edition of the book. I did recently write an article that was published uh, in Harvard Law's Journal for Sports that touches on that specific topic Uh, but with regard to the ownership of intellectual property and specifically tattoos you are absolutely right it is a case that we have been litigating in the southern district of new york now we're probably coming up on roughly three years two or three years of litigating that case and um, i don't think it surprises any lawyer who's listening that these types of cases particularly in the southern district of new york can take some time but what we're essentially arguing in that case is that the tattoo artists as the creators of the content, as the creators of the tattoo artwork, are the owners of, that, of the copyrights that surround that artwork. And that unless there's a work for hire agreement or some other document that assigns the right to those copyrights to another individual, then that tattoo artist owns the copyright and can exploit the copyright surrounding the tattoos. My client, a company called Solid Oak Sketches, actually received exclusive licenses, which operate in the same form and fashion as an assignment, from those tattoo artists for the specific purpose of being able to exploit them um, and has conducted a business on that premise. The lawsuit essentially states that The makers of NBA 2K, the very popular video game on Xbox, PlayStation and otherwise, has been using identical copies of that tattoo artwork in their game. And that NBA 2K and its developer has really promoted the fact that the game feels as though it's real life down to the tattoos and that it's an instrumental part of the game because it brings the realism out and causes consumers to want to buy various versions of the gameplay. Where we're at in the litigation, uh, the other side tried to, uh, or they filed a motion for judgment on the pleadings. The court denied that. Uh, They more recently filed a motion for summary judgment. At this point, it's been fully briefed. And we're waiting for the court to provide a response on that. In the meantime, uh, there had been other lawsuits filed against NBA 2K uh, for this particular issue. And I'm aware of one specifically that revolves around, I'm sorry, not NBA 2K, but the developer of the game. And it revolves around uh, a WWE game that was created using, uh, I guess, same or similar tattoos as well. But that, is, that was filed after our lawsuit, and I believe it's uh, at the much earlier stages of litigation.
1: Thank you, Darren. This is my last question. What's the craziest story that you can share with us from your work as either an agent or sports lawyer?
2: Well, I don't know if this is the craziest story, but it's a definitely a very interesting story. So I've had a relationship uh, with ESPN sports business reporter Darren Rovell for a very long time. And I would say within the past two, three years, you know, it's actually become more professional where uh, thankfully he's appreciated the work that I do. And and sometimes he'll provide referrals to me uh, based on the individuals that that he crosses paths with. And on one occasion, this was probably a year or two ago, Darren sat next to one of the best broadcasters of all time, Bill Raftery, who uh, is a commentator on College of Basketball. And they got to talking and Darren asked him, you know, have you ever tried to protect some of these popular catchphrases that you use, such as onions or with a kiss? And Bill was like, no, I never really thought about it, but perhaps it presents an interesting business opportunity that I can leave for my sons to to commercialize. So Darren connected us. And Bill pulled the trigger and said, all right, go ahead, give it a shot, try to file these, these trademark applications. And so I've filed probably more than 300 applications in the U S alone, but to file one for onions seemed like a stretch. And we went back and forth with the examining attorney that was assigned to our application with a kiss. We got pretty easily, but onions, was a battle and you know you would think that it would probably be a battle because onion is generic or even descriptive of a particular product but instead what the examining attorney came back with was we're concerned that it would be confused with the satire website the onion and, man, we went back and forth, back and forth. This was one I wasn't willing to lose on. Not that I'm willing to lose on any of them, but I had to push on this one. And wouldn't you know, after quite a battle, we ended up getting not only with a kiss, but we got onions. And, uh, you know, Bill's been able to make some some nice revenue on the side from that by just licensing it to third parties and allowing them to create different types of apparel. So it's it's presented a nice new revenue stream. Uh, through royalties and it's something that you know he he wouldn't have even thought
1: of had he not sat next to Darren Rovell on an airplane Darren that's a great story Thanks to Darren Heitner, author of How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know, Second Edition. For those of you listening to this podcast, if you wish to purchase the book, go to AmericanBar.org and use the code HTP30. That's HTP30 at checkout for special discount through December 31st. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Modern Law Library Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.